Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. We are continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. You'll find this on page 810 of the Pew Bible, if you wish to turn there. As we, as we come again to this uh, sermon, we come to a passage where Jesus confronts us with the truth about truth-telling. He says His disciples are to say what we mean and do what we say. Let me invite you to consider that from God's holy and inspired word. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, thank you for this word which is breathed out by you and it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So do that work in us by the work of your spirit through this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you think about the malicious effects of lies for a few moments? Fred Holloway uh, served as the chaplain of the Senate of the state of Kansas for 33 years. Here was one of his opening prayers for the Senate. Omniscient Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells one thing and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, We would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) It's kind of sadly cynical, isn't it? Who's telling the truth here? Can we trust anything these people are about to say? It's not just for politicians, is it? Or fake news media, whoever's distributing that. But what about from one another? Have you developed yet an intense dislike for deception, for deceitfulness? Can you remember a time when someone lied to you or about you so badly it just crushed you. You know, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, 
but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. A decade ago, I picked up a voicemail coming off the Yellow Rock Trail when my phone finally hit a cell tower. I picked up a voicemail. Later, I got a follow-up email from a complete stranger to me, as best I know, who said awful things to me and who claimed I did awful things to him back in high school. Now, he had obviously found our ministry online, got our contact information, somehow had gotten hold of my high school yearbook, or maybe through Facebook, flipped through names of classmates, claimed to be one, though his, no, his name was itself nowhere in any of the yearbooks moving forward or backward years. And he put people together as friends who never spent a moment together outside of the classroom, people who weren't friends. It was all lies. And then he called my intern, whose contact information was also on our website, and he told her terrible things about me, too. And it was very distressful. She feared for, as a young single woman, feared for her safety. We took it all to the police, who never did catch up with him. It created a weight and an anxiety that hung over my life for months. What about you? Have you ever had anyone lie to you or about you and break your confidence and it just was a burden that felt like almost too much to bear? Many of you have experienced that. Maybe you remember it vivid detail. Uh, It made you lose your trust in them. Maybe uh, it brought anxiety and fear for you or provoked you to anger. Uh, You lost a, a bit of your faith in humanity. And if it happens in the church... Like when something is disclosed in confidence and then is spread around in the pews for prayer, it can be extraordinarily painful as brothers and sisters. God here is telling us through Jesus to be truth tellers. Think of the nine commandment, though this is nothing new. You shall not bear false witness, the scripture says, the commandment says. God, all along to his people, time and again, has said, look, marriages and families cannot be built and friendships cannot survive and business dealings fall apart and the church gets weak and ineffective without a radical commitment to truth-telling. Proverbs 6, verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Here are two in that list. A lying tongue and a false witness who breathes out lies. Proverbs 12.22, it's no wonder, says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And so I'll just ask you, have you told any lies lately? What kind of lies did you tell? Are you a a half-truth teller? Honey, I'll be right home. I'm leaving the office in five minutes. I'll be down in a second. Hey, let's get coffee. I'll call you back. I'll pay you back. Soon, real soon. I'll return this to you as soon as I'm done with it. Or, can I just have a minute of your time? That's one manner of lying. Half-truths. What about exaggeration? 
You ever present some finished work, product, or project and made your role in it to be a little larger than it actually was? Have you ever described someone else's behavior and then imputed to them the worst possible motive, turning what was probably an innocent failure into a monstrous crime? Have you ever complained and to garner sympathy made yourself sound more hurt? than you really are? These are lies of exaggeration. Here's a different kind of lie. Have you ever gotten in trouble and you felt that the only way out was to tell a whopper of a tale? 30 years ago, a college freshman and a a, a new believer of just a few months was late with a paper for an English class. And out of fear for his future, he told a professor that the reason his paper was late was that a friend from high school had committed suicide. There was no suicide. You ask, what kind of a sick, twisted, depraved person would do such a thing? Just for a grade nobody's ever going to ask him, me, uh, about. (laughs) What kind of whoppers have you ever told? Do you remember how it felt the last time you told a lie? Or when you didn't do what you said you would do? Did you get a sick feeling in your stomach? Uh, Did the... Uh, did, did, did your neck get a little red and hot? Your palms got sweaty, arms got fidgety, maybe you couldn't sleep? Have you ever told a lie and then you had to tell more lies to keep up the story and eventually you sort of lost yourself in the story and lies so that you can't even remember what's true and what's false, what's, what, what you've told people and what really happened? What you learn over time, and we do learn this by experience, painfully so, is that lying is messy, lying is ugly, lying is isolating, and it is enslaving. And it is not what God wants for us, which is why he speaks to us about being truth tellers. Because he himself, in in whose image we are made, he himself is a pure and perfect being who always, at the core of who he is, is perfectly truthful and honest about everything. And we are made in the image of God like that. And he wants us to be like him as he made us to be. But of course, (laughs) Genesis 3, we're all fallen and lying now comes naturally to us. Lying... Lying is the easiest example I know of to talk about original sin. The fact that we all are just born in sin. We come into it and nobody has to teach you to sin. Nobody has to give you a bad example to sin. It just pops out of who you are because you are sinful. You never have to teach a, a, a young child to lie. They'll say, no mama, I didn't take a cookie while half of it is smeared on their face. When a little one in our home just recently announced by volunteering it that uh, he, no-go poo-poo in pants, we all knew 
that he had just done exactly that. But Jesus wants us to become more like him. He's determined to make us like him. And maybe the first place he'll begin with you is to let you be caught in a lie that you've told. To confront you with it. To teach you the hidden evils of your heart. To humble you. To make you maybe begin to hate your own lying tongue. So that maybe you'll come to him for forgiveness and change. Getting caught in a lie can be a great mercy from God. Now, what is Jesus particularly teaching us here about truth-telling and lying? And here's where I want you to look at the text with me. Verse 33, what did Moses teach? Verses 34 to 36, what did the Pharisees teach? Verse 37, what does Jesus then teach? In the first place, what did Moses teach? Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So Jesus here pulls together a couple of things that the people had heard, and they had heard it from people in their own day, but it was based on words from Moses in the Old Testament. Not just one sentence, but a a combination of things from the Old Testament. Here he's talking about swearing falsely or taking an oath or a vow falsely. And the reason Jesus mentions oaths and vows is because they were so common in his day and so commonly broken when a person's word was to be their bond and it wasn't. In, in our day, uh, where people read and write more, we make contracts about things. We, we write things down in detail. We sign and date it at the bottom. Everybody can see what's been promised. But in a, a society where most people don't read and write, don't have access to paper and pen, you made agreements orally. You spoke your promise, and then you were asked to swear an oath that it was true or take a vow to fulfill what you have promised. And people would often invoke the names of deities when they did that. Even the Jews were taught to do that. Just if you wanted to look sometime, Leviticus 19 verse 12, God says to Israel, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. These were legally binding stipulations in the Old Testament law for the people of God. Vows were a way of calling down a higher uh, judgment upon ourselves than than ourselves if we failed to do what we said we would do. Just like in our own courts of law, if I, promise, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. Or God get me if I don't. That's what we're saying, right? Moses is saying then in the Old Testament, perform what you have sworn. Do what you said you would do. In other words, say and then do the truth. Don't you, however, find that that's easier said than done? I'm almost certain that uh, approximately a month ago, while greeting people after worship, I made an appointment for coffee or breakfast with someone that week. 
but I didn't write it immediately down in my calendar on my phone, and I forgot. And to this day, I can't even remember who I was supposed to meet, where or when. And somebody, perhaps one of you here today, even knows what a failure I am in keeping my calendar. But you haven't said anything to me yet. It would relieve my conscience greatly if you would. (laughs) So I could ask you directly to forgive me. And know that it's not standing between us, that idiot pastor. Sometimes we don't keep our word like that. Through uh, unintended weakness and failure. No excuse, but no bad intention. Um, simply not following through. We, we wouldn't say of ourselves that we were lying, not on the front end, but we would say we were unfaithful to do what we said we would do, and it, it seems I do this a lot. Uh, a lot of personal illustrations today, because I didn't want to talk about your lies publicly, but it seems I do this a lot. In the last few weeks, I said I'd email someone about getting together, and I never got it written, and then I saw them again and said, let's do that, and I'll write, and then they very graciously wrote me first. We had a great time. I did. I lie to myself. I suppose you do too. I I make a list of things I intend to do and some of them never get done. They just get written on the next to-do list. And I make promises to myself. I'll I'll finally do that thing I said I would do. I, I know that some of you live with a continual sense of failure about these sorts of things, your own weakness in this area. I'm not saying every time you make a to-do list and things carry over that you're in sin at all. And I'm, I'm, and I'm talking about a category that's very minor comparatively to what we're about to talk about. But still, some of you live with this nagging sense of constant guilt that you do not do the good that you ought to do. And the Apostle Paul says, that's right. You do not do the good you want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? I am tired of me. And he turns right around and says, but praise God. Thank God for Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. Now, there's a whole different level of lying, of course. And that's where we're headed. And it's the kind of lying the Pharisees had mastered. You'll see it in verses 34 to 36, which we'll read in just a second. What the Pharisees did, and I just want to prep it for you, is they came up with ways of saying, I know I said that, but I had my fingers crossed when I said it. And that lets me lie to you. Um, Some of you maybe didn't do this, but as a kid, we used to make friends show their hands in the neighborhood while they spoke about something they were swearing was true to see if they were crossing their fingers. But then, of course, we'd cross our feet. I never could cross my eyes, though I knew people who did that. Too much of that, of course, and soon nobody believes anything you say, and you get a reputation for lying, and then you're like the boy who cried wolf, and your word becomes worthless. And that's what the Pharisees did, and their word became worthless, and it was wrong. They had sort of perfected it, though. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now look, that's what they were doing. Those are the kinds of oaths they were taking. They knew that if you swore and invoked God's name, 
you were in serious trouble if you didn't follow through. That'd be an obvious way of breaking the third commandment, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't involve God's name in your promise, which you fail because the Lord won't hold you guiltless. So to avoid that, they had all these different things a person could swear by. People could swear by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem or towards Jerusalem or by their head. And depending on what you swore by, your accountability to do it or liability if you failed to do it increased or decreased. And they had law courts that would actually sort these things out. They wrote whole books about the different kinds of things you could swear to. And the gradations of how binding those were. Did you swear by earth but not by heaven? Oh, well, okay then. You're off the hook. You can imagine the conversations in that generation. Uh, Good morning, Rabbi Aaron. You promised to pay me that $100 you owe me today. I'm sorry, Rabbi Levi. Don't you remember I crossed my fingers when I promised? I, I only swore by the temple, not by the gold in the temple. I'd give it to you. You know it's not legally binding and I won't be paying you today. The fact that Rabbi Aaron gave his word meant nothing. He only felt obligated if he made the promise in a legally binding form, invoking God's name directly or depending upon that connection. Jesus expresses his contempt for that idea later in Matthew, Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22, where he calls these scribes and Pharisees who propagate this nonsense Uh, blind guides. I mean, listen to just his language. You'll get a a, a greater flavor for what they were doing. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So Jesus says, look, you can't avoid bringing God into it. Every time you swear, if you swear by heaven, that's his throne. If you swear by earth, that's his footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, that's the city of the great king where God rules his people. Don't even swear by your own head. You don't have power back in Sermon on the Mount. You don't have power even to make your hair turn white or black. Your hairs belong to God. And so does your head. But instead of calling on God to confirm their honesty, these Pharisees, they phrased their oaths to avoid God's punishment when they spoke dishonestly. How can I, how can I promise in such a way that I can be dishonest and get away with it? That's their modus operandi. And Jesus cuts right through that. And he cuts through the civil law and all the loopholes they had arranged for themselves so that they didn't have to keep their word. And he brings them back to the simplicity of the moral law of God that you and I are always everywhere to tell the truth.
Mean what you say. Do what you promise. You shouldn't have to make somebody pinky swear for it. You shouldn't have to say, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. I'm really telling you the truth today. And so, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. And then what does Jesus do? What does he teach? That's the third thing here. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus says his disciples are to be sincere and honest. Simple truth-telling should be enough. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Our word should be our bond. If we say something, it should be true. There should be no doubt. If we say we'll do something, we should do it. And we shouldn't need to swear. All our speech is in the presence of God. You don't need to invoke his name. You don't need to take an oath or a vow towards Jerusalem or by Jerusalem to get the deity involved. He's already here. You're made in his image. You belong to him. Your lips belong to him. Your words are in his ears. He's got a record of everything you say, every promise you ever make. So Jesus says, just let your yes be yes. And literally he says, say yes, yes, no, no. He reiterates the yes and the no. Now, don't do what the Pharisees would do with something just like that. They'd ask, well, what if I just said yes once? What if I just said no once? Then do I escape? No, no. Jesus is saying, say what you mean. Mean what you say. Do what you say will you do what you say you will do. Always. Two questions come up as you study this passage. That two questions often come up. One is if oaths and vows are forbidden, why did God Himself then use oaths in Scripture? I mean, take for example Genesis chapter twenty-two. Jesus, uh, God speaking to Abraham said at verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you, Abraham, have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. By myself I have sworn. He swears an oath by himself. Now, why does God do that if, if, we, sh- if we don't need to do that thing, if we're a truth teller? Well, the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews tells us it's not because of any defect in him. But it's actually because of a defect in us. So Hebrews chapter 6 says this, beginning of verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than, than, than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes that before us. What's all that about? He's saying, look, 
God swore an oath by himself, there was nothing greater to swear by, to show us more convincingly the unchanging character of his purpose. It's not his character, but ours that's in doubt, our unwillingness to believe him, our slowness to believe. So he condescends to us. He doesn't say, oh, well, you don't believe me when I say it? That's it. I'm done with you. No, he says, I know your hearts. I'll even swear an oath to you by my own name just to help convince you I'm serious about my covenant faithfulness to you. So that by two things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What are the two things? His word and the oath confirming the word. We might be encouraged to believe more strongly in his promised hope. He did it for not his sake, but our sake. Not because he is unbelievable, but because we are slow to believe. So it's not inherently immoral to swear an oath. God did it. Second question, is this prohibition then absolute for us? I mean, can Christians ever take an oath or a vow? Is Jesus saying you must never, ever, for any reason, under any circumstances, ever take an oath? Now, in the history of the church, some have held that view. The Anabaptists of the 16th century took that view. Most Quakers, as I understand them today, following in that line, still take that view. So some will not speak in court because of... Uh, it requires a vow to tell the truth and some will not join the military because of a vow to, uh, of allegiance or an oath of allegiance to the Constitution. And they simply don't want to do that because they don't want to disobey Jesus as they understand him. Now, we properly should admire anybody who doesn't want to compromise what they are convinced of. But we might also say that that view is misguided. And the reformers rejected that view. There are times, we might say, that in public life, it's okay to take an oath or a vow. Why would we say that? After all, when the high priest at the trial of Jesus put Jesus publicly under oath to speak, Jesus answered. Up to that point, Jesus remained silent. He was being falsely accused and he remained silent. And then in Matthew 26, the high priest put him under oath saying, I adjure you or I urge you earnestly by the living God. It's an oath taking. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus spoke and said, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. But but he answered to the oath. It was not improper. What Jesus is emphasizing in the Sermon on the Mount is, 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 is that honest people shouldn't need to take an oath, don't need to take an oath. Not that they must refuse to do so if some authority over them asks it of them. Yes, in private, among friends and brothers, we should simply tell the truth to everyone. Yet because God himself swore an oath for the sake of his doubting hearers, we can take oaths for the sake of our doubting hearers. For people who don't know we're reliable, we can take oaths to aid their assurance that they can trust our word. It should never be necessary because of us, but it may be required because of them. Either way, it should be unnecessary. Just honestly say yes or no. Anything beyond that, Jesus says, comes from evil. And he either means from the evil of our own hearts, 
For it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Or he means, and it can properly be taken this way, of the evil one. And there, of course, he means the devil, the father of lies. Lying is his native tongue. It was, after all, he in the Garden of Eden who said to Eve, Did God really say, dying you will die? Is that what he said? The devil was crossing his fingers. He knew what God had really said. But he loved so distrust and discord in relationships, and that's what he did in the garden. And through promoting the lie, he broke the relationship between God and man. He broke the relationship between the husband and the wife, and he's still seeking to break and tear apart all of our relationships. And so I don't know how you're reflecting on this. I know that I've got to stop saying I'll do things and then not do them. I've got to learn to say no, perhaps. Or I've got to learn to bite my own tongue, keep myself from making promises I'm not going to keep. What about you? When we fail to keep our word, it breaks our confidence in one another. It causes us to distrust one another all the more. And that ruins work and family and church. It's destructive. It's wrong. And what's the Christian's response? It is to repent, to own up to your failures and repent before God and confess to those you've hurt. Turn to God then to give you renewed obedience. Your hope is in the God who tells it like it is, who long ago promised to Adam and Eve when they were hiding in that garden because they believed the lie, doubted his truth, failed to do what they ought to do and then turned on each other to blame each other instead of themselves. To them, God promised, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, yet he himself will be bruised on the heel. And thousands of years later, it was just as God said. The seed of the woman was born of the virgin, bruised on the cross, but destroyed the work of the devil, trampling him underfoot and triumphing over him on the cross and through that empty tomb. God on the cross is your hope. The God who promises pardon for all who ask. The God who gives a new heart and a clean heart and power for new life because he is the way and the truth and the life. He can forgive you and he can transform you. May we all grow more like him even as we rest in his salvation based on his truth and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. You know our hearts. You know all the things we have ever said. We are a people of unclean lips. We dwell among a people of unclean lips. Forgive us. Pardon us. Change us. Pray that you make us more like Jesus. Humble our pride. Lift up the downcast. Protect us from the evil one. Keep back your servants from presumptuous sins. May they not rule over us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together of the faithfulness of our God.